0: so much of the music that I play is in some ways actually more detailed and more prescriptive than some older music, right? There's more markings, there's more articulation markings, there's more expressive markings, there's more of everything. Um, But sometimes that more of everything and the fact that it's brand new brings a sense of liberation that you don't necessarily get Mm -hmm. um, playing some older stuff.
1: This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Sang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Andy Kozar. Andy, well, he's a bit of a groundbreaker. Andy started his career with dreams of becoming an orchestral player, but while studying at the Eastman School of Music, Andy was bitten by the new music bug, Since then, Andy has become a prominent voice in both the performance and composition of contemporary music. As a faculty member at the Longy School of Music, Andy is opening the ears and minds of a new generation of musicians, and his new book, Response, is his contribution to making trumpet playing a little bit easier for us all. So, pour yourself a big glass, flip a chair, and let the hang begin! And welcome to another exciting edition of the Trumpet Guru's Hang. And I am joined by Mr. Andy Kazar. Mr. Andy Kazar. Uh, so, uh, Andy, welcome to the Hang, my friend.
0: Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is great.
1: Oh, uh, man. It, we, you know, uh, so folks, uh, to give you a little bit behind the scenes here, uh, Andy and I have been trying to connect for some time, and uh, we we got a couple things on the books and. Uh, I ended up uh, getting the flu and then uh, something else happened and there's construction going on in my (laughs) studio. And uh, so it seems like every time we got something on the book, something happened to, to derail it, but now we are officially together. So, uh, you know, it's not always easy bringing the show to you. So uh, there's work involved, (laughs) but I'm just glad to have you on, man. Um, Yeah. I did. uh, I I try not to go too deep into people's uh, background. When uh uh when I'm bringing on a guest, especially with somebody that, that I really don't know, uh that well, and and the reason I like to do that is because. I want this to be kind of a genuine hang, you know. This is this is you know two guys, you know, if we met each other at at ITG or or uh, you know something like that. Uh, this is I would like this kind to be the kind of conversation that we would have in those kind of venues, like where where we actually get to know each other a little bit and yeah, for sure, you know, in that process. So, you know, uh, the the one thing that I did find out that we we do have in common is that that we both uh, uh, have spent uh, many of our formative years in the in the Pittsburgh area. So, uh, you know, Pittsburgh is, is, a uh, man, it's changed a lot since I lived there back in the, the like originally in the sixties and seventies, and then even into the the, the early nineties, but the, the place has changed so much. Um, did you, uh, were you, uh, in involved in the music scene fairly heavily in, uh, in the,
0: in the Pittsburgh area or did, did it take you getting out of there to I was yeah I was I was kind of a kid basically when I left Um, so I I grew up just south of the city Um, although I went into town every week for lessons I studied with a guy named Anthony Pascarelli who um, taught for many many years at Carnegie Mellon um, and taught all the guys in the River City Brass Band and so I studied with him through high school and part of my undergrad so I went to Carnegie Mellon for two years um, and he was already quite old by the time that I was studying with him and so he retired when I was at Carnegie Mellon so I transferred up to Eastman um, but in terms of being involved in the music scene not really I was still like I was very much a student um, I was doing as much playing as possible but so much of it was within like kind of the academic kind of safety safety umbrella um, but it's fun for me to come back now uh, my family is still all here so I get to Come back and visit. It's it's funny because I don't know I don't really know where to go because <laughs> when I was here I wasn't able to drink or do anything yet. So um, I have to ask advice on on where where the cool places are. But um, it was a great place to grow up. Growing up and you know being in high school and getting to go hear the Pittsburgh Symphony every weekend, getting to hear River City Brass Band and be um, surrounded by really great trumpet playing in a bunch of different styles. I think was really Formative and really important for for my young ears, yeah, yeah
1: well you know and that's i I guess maybe it it has changed a little bit more as we have uh you know virtual means of of uh of keeping in touch with what's going on in the music scene, but there is still nothing like being in a concert hall uh being in a club uh you know just to to be alive and and to take in the music because there's there's something about it. Um, you know, when, 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 there's, when you have that, that synergistic relationship that you, that the, the performer builds with the audience, um, there, there's nothing like it to me to me. So.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I think too, like, um, developing sound concept as a young player, right? When your experience is just listening on CDs and playing in, you know, your high school band, um, being able to like at fifteen go hear Britain war Requiem, which is not a piece I would have like stumbled upon in my you know trumpet c d collection um and hearing it played by like such world class players was i think really important for me to to get an idea of like what um what possibilities there are and what the level is like what's the what's the professional level that I am aspiring to to reach yeah yeah yeah, that absolutely, man, that, that is so spot on. Um, you
1: know, and you're, uh, well, we're kind of just going to jump right, like, into your, your career and things yeah. like that. Um, but you have a a strong interest in uh, more contemporary uh, music and composition. Uh, and, you know, how, how did you come into that, that space, you know, because I can understand, you know, if you're, you're in Pittsburgh, you're around the symphony, or, you know, you're new in New York, you're around the, the Phil and the Matt, you know, definitely, you know, getting bit by the Mahler bug or, you know, something like that. But, but how do you, how do you get introduced to uh, these modern compositions? And, and, and I and one of the other things I want to talk about as it relates to it is, is the the difference in technique that's required uh, to play some of the more modern compositions, as opposed to the things that, that uh, a standard, classically trained trumpet player would uh, probably never run into.
0: Yeah, sure. Um <clears throat> so I ended up getting into it actually in undergrad. Um when I was at Carnegie Mellon I played in the new music ensemble, but in the new music ensemble there we were playing Kurt Vile and Aaron Copeland. Um and you know, it was great to play those pieces, but it wasn't necessarily um incredibly experimental or forward-thinking new music ensemble. Um and when I was at Eastman, so I got bit by the Mahlerbug bug like <laughs> in high school um so i was I was super into that, which is what what drew me into wanting to go to music school and at the time thinking that I wanted to be an orchestra player um, and so when I was at Eastman, probably in my junior year or so, um I started feeling like maybe I wanted something a little bit different uh I wanted to be a little bit more engaged in the actual creative process um I I stumbled upon I mean I remember sitting in an orchestra rehearsal and and kind of thinking that like any good trumpet player could do this. Like I didn't feel super invested in it. I felt like a kind of a cog in the wheel which in retrospect I realize I stumbled upon um what is also really beautiful about playing in the orchestra is that it's not about any one individual as much as it is about 60, 70, 80 people getting together to create this thing that is bigger than any one individual. But at the time um it felt just like a little not 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 super satisfying to me um i wanted to be more involved in the musical decisions that were being made as opposed to being told how to play things by a conductor um i loved playing chamber music um loved playing in brass quintets or in any sort of mixed instrumentation chamber stuff and so it left me kind of upside down a bit in terms of how then i wanted my career to work out so if i was thinking for so long i wanted to be an orchestra player um and then all of a sudden i realized like i don't think this actually makes me all that happy um what do i do so uh i was thinking about doing some chamber music i started dabbling in the new music ensemble at eastman and uh eastman has had and still has an incredibly thriving contemporary music um scene a lot of collaboration between performers and composers brad lubman the conductor is there um and so to get to work with him as a student was really important for me. And then I got bit by this, uh John Zorn bug. He was like my gateway drug into new music, kind of. So like through listening to him, I'd look and see who else he's playing with. So I had, I had no idea who Dave Douglas was until I started listening to Zorn. And then I started listening to all of the Dave Douglas records and who's he working with and Akui Mori and all these interesting people who were doing really creative work. And then... um through them, there ends up being these crossover people that are doing improvised music, but also through composed new music. And it introduced me to this entire scene of people doing really creative and interesting work that I didn't even know was a possibility. Um, And so then I was thinking about grad school, what I was gonna do And Manhattan School, uh, had just started this contemporary music master's program and Mark Gould was teaching. So um, I had already had a couple lessons with him and reached out and and that ended up working out so i was able to go to msm and do a master's specifically in contemporary music um and so there i really got my feet wet learned a ton about all sorts of different players and people and practices and um really interesting things that people were doing uh and really interesting ways in making a living that i didn't know was possible and so that's where my quartet loadbang got formed um, and a lot of formative relationships with some faculty there and and other students that were in the program. And and I would say when I graduated, I was like a hundred percent new music. Um, so there was like a hard pendulum swing. And and since it's sort of found a balance, I realized that I actually love playing an orchestra. Um, I love playing Baroque trumpet. Um, and I love doing new music stuff. So now my my freelance career, while it still is a lot of new music um loadbang is really busy so we're doing all new music i also play with uh boston modern orchestra project in boston and then freelance stuff both in new york and boston and so um now i'm just kind of happy to play trumpet whether it's playing with like andrea bocelli or playing some you know zany new music that's really incredibly difficult both i think bring me um different kinds of very valid satisfaction yeah
1: well you know and that's that's i i hate to say it but it's it's a sign of a sign of age that's what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well i mean it's, it's a level of maturity or and and that comes through experience and it has nothing to do with 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 the numerical age but you know as we allow ourselves to experience life more and to see all the options that are around us and then more importantly i think to experience them uh, and then it helps you to to get a clearer picture on on what really speaks to you. And yeah, hey, I, I think that you know a lot of times we paint ourselves in a corner, and you know if uh, I, I can't I can't even hazard a guess at how many trumpet players I've talked to, and I put myself in that that camp every once in a while as well, that feel like their careers are not what they should be. And hmm. because their career, they're basing their, their career, their, their, uh, their success in the musical industry as being based on something that someone told them that they should do. Okay. Or,
0: a, or an idea that they had as a kid of like, or, or a kid, you know, like 19, 20, 21 year old right. of like what their career was supposed to be. Yeah. When the reality is like, I didn't think, I mean when I was in school or even soon out of school, I had no idea that this, I couldn't have told you that I'd be doing any of these things that I'm doing right now with the exception of maybe like, maybe loadbang, maybe my quartet. Cause we were, we were so committed and it felt like it was on that track already, but like all the other stuff, the teaching I'm doing in Boston, the playing I'm doing in Boston, even being mostly in Boston now and not in New York as much is something that like, if you told me that 10 years ago, I would have said like, I'll never leave new york i'm never moving you know like um but yeah as, as i think you're right as you get older as you gain more experience or a combination of the two um as long as you stay open it can afford you like great clarity of, like what what you want to be doing what makes you happy regardless of what you think should make you happy or what you thought would make you happy you know years ago
1: yeah yeah I was actually uh, I was helping my my uh, youngest stepdaughter go through uh, a process. It, it's uh, called Ikigai. It's uh, a, a way of, of finding finding your purpose in life, your life purpose, and and build, so that you can build your life around those things. So A lot of people just use it for career, but you know it, it's it's more than just that. But you know finding finding that intersection of of what you're passionate about, you know what you love doing, what you're good at doing. Uh What makes a difference in the world and what people will pay you for you know <laughs> and that, right 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 you know that's 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 the spot. If you can find that spot and build your life around that, then you know that's when you live your most fulfilled life and I think sure. a lot that that we uh you know like as, as trumpet players and specifically, but you know as humans in general, uh, we either gravitate towards um, you know what we what we're good at. Uh, and not thinking that necessarily that's what I love, you know, like you could be a great classical, tr- you know, a great trumpet player, have great technique, uh, you know, all the things that re- that uh, it takes to be a great symphonic player, but you may not really be that passionate about that music. Uh, right. you know, and you may be great in experimental music, but, you know, maybe there's not a market for it. So you've got to find, you know, you've got to be able to find those spots mm-hmm. and to work within them. I think, and and I and I'm really fascinated by uh, experimental music. I have a a good friend that I play with, uh, who's a guitarist and a and a composer, uh, who's definitely in in that world. Um, and I just find it fascinating uh, the 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 freedoms that are afforded you, and how do you you know how do you balance that the the lack of restrictions uh, of what you can and cannot do musically. With uh still making a, a statement that is musical, you know how how do you straddle that line of of, of pushing uh, what what music is without losing what music really is?
0: Yeah, I mean, I will say a lot of the stuff that I play, um it's not that it necessarily affords more freedom, necessarily, some of it does, but I think the there's an incredible pluralism in the way that people are working um, and in kind of the the ways that composers are communicating their ideas to us as players to to create. So I think often for me, whether it's trumpet and electronic stuff or it's um, pieces for trumpet and soprano with my wife, we have a duo and do a bunch of new music, or it's Loadbang, the quartet of mine, which is trumpet, trombone, bass, clarinet, baritone, voice, and... Um, been commissioning and, and performing new pieces for 14 years now, and I've done over 450 new pieces at this point. Um, often it's like, it's very through composed. The com- the composer is very, very detailed with what they want from us. So um, there is freedom and there's liberation in that we are the first people to do it, right? Like there's there is a sense of freedom in that because you're not saddled with the baggage of hundreds of years of performance practice and everybody has their own idea about how this should go, right? The people that are at this concert are hearing this thing for the first time and we're playing it for the first time. Or if it's not a premiere, you know, maybe it's the seventh or eighth time this piece has ever been played. So you're, you're not saddled with that. And the piece actually, the pieces I think are then afforded the ability to grow and develop, um, as we are finding out what the piece is also with the composer. Um, Sometimes we're given pieces that are, that have a lot of freedom baked into the process. The composer is going out of their way to give us lots of freedom. And, you know, it kind of depends on the piece. That each piece requires something a little bit different from me or from us. And sometimes actually in in given a piece with a lot of freedom, that means that before we play it, we actually, as the quartet or I, as the individual have to spend a lot of time thinking and talking about what it is that we're actually going to do with it. Um, because with the freedom, it can, it can very easily end up just being willy nilly, which is very rarely the, the thing that the composer is looking for. Um, I don't know if that super answers your question, but, but the interesting thing I think is that, um, so much of the music that I play, is in some ways actually more detailed and more prescriptive than some older music right there's more markings there's more articulation markings there's more expressive markings there's more of everything um but sometimes that more of everything and the fact that it's brand new brings a sense of liberation that you don't necessarily get Mm -hmm. um playing some older stuff yeah
1: yeah yeah i i just remember you know uh in my my teens when i I discovered the music of Frank Zappa mm. and that was kind of like my first foray into uh you know the non-traditional kind of music and uh and his music sounded so you know obviously you know, there was all the sophomore humor involved in it but you know there was some there was some very complex orchestration that was going on in there sure and uh it sounded in in the the fact that it sounded so chaotic but was actually everything was well thought out and well orchestrated and very well directed. Um, it it was a very interesting juxtaposition of of uh, freedom and control, and it kind of turns everything on its head. Like you're saying there's in in the new music there that you're playing, a lot of the music you're playing it has much more notation and articulation, uh, things like that that demands. But it's done in a way that that is so uh, different than what uh, our ears have been trained to listen to and to hear Right, so it, it right. It's really kind of fun. I, I, I enjoy it a lot. So that, that's super cool. So, um, you know, in terms of, of your, your development as a player, uh, and as it has uh, been expressed in, in this genre primarily, um, you know, what, what are kind of the things that you, you feel like you had to, uh, learn, And then what are some of the things you had to unlearn in order to be able to perform in in that kind of a venue?
0: I mean, I think the thing that I had to learn was that I still have to do the same amount, if not more work on my fundamentals and very simple practice. Um, so, despite the fact that sometimes the music is a lot more angular, or it's a lot harder, or it's a lot faster. These there's crazy leaps, or there are these kind of technical gymnastics that I have to navigate. Um, I think when I was a lot younger, my approach was to just like dive right in and try to figure the thing out. And really, the reality is that my my practice, um, the thing that has changed or evolved in my practice is that I spend a lot of time doing really basic things uh and just really like really working to refine fundamentals every day so my practice session on a, in a day is like hour and a half or so of flow studies articulation lift flexibilities playing really soft working on um like clarity of articulate all this stuff we're always working on right how to play um how to play efficiently how to play balanced and then whenever i go into one of these harder pieces that i'm shedding that i'm working on it's how can i bring that sense of um like foundational, um, how can I make this feel as easy as something that is much easier, essentially, right? So I'm um, working on a couple of things now that that my quartet's premiering in a few weeks here. And it's quite hard, it's a lot harder than most of the stuff that I had learned in school or most of the kind of traditional rep in our canon. Um, but the goal is is just to to find ways to make it feel like those things, feel as easy as that. And the way for me to do that really is like super slow, note by note, um, it's, it's not exotic at all. Um, I, I remember telling my students at Longi about this because we were, during the pandemic, um, load bang, in order to do work and to continue these residencies, these university residencies we had, it had to all be online but we also all had to be together to make it happen the the kind of music we played didn't really work for us to do like each record a track with click and then put it together that would have been a nightmare so um we a couple times maybe four or five times we would rent a house in yonkers and the four of us would just live together for a few weeks at a time um so we would basically quarantine together and then that we would be our own pod for a handful of weeks um and so the music that we're playing often was like it was really tricky or it was had these microtonal tuning systems or this stuff that is is uh at least initially very very difficult but i was i was telling the students that if you were to sit in the living room while the four of us were in our own individual bedrooms just practicing doing our own work what you would hear is major scales and long tones um like the things that we're practicing on our horns are really the fundamentals continuing to refine.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it, it, the the most complex thing is just made up of the most foundational basic
0: concepts. Totally. A, a hard a hard lick is still like it's those notes that you know how to play. The order of them may be a little bit different, um, but you still go through and you figure out where you each of those notes need to sit, and then you slowly increase the tempo and you slur it, and then you t- you know, you do all those things that you would do when you're learning the canon or whatever. Um, some, you know, sometimes it takes a little bit longer because it's harder or it's faster. The learning curve maybe is a little bit of a different shape. Um, but for me, the process is still the process. I was, um, I was listening to an interview. I forget on what podcast it was, but it was with Chris Bosch, the basketball player. Mm-hmm um and he was talking about how for him he loves the game of basketball right playing the game is really really fun but the thing that brought him the most pleasure was the routine was like going to the free throw in practice and shooting 200 free throws a day practicing the layups practicing the fundamentals and trying to continue to refine the craft of the game and then whenever the game comes, it's really fun, and you can you can put into um, practice all these things you're working on. But the thing that is the most fun, and the thing that brings the most kind of intrinsic joy, is the process of like doing the work. Um, and that really resonated with me because I I feel the same. He he put into words so clearly the thing that I feel and never really thought about like that. But I love playing the concerts, playing the pieces, playing the gigs is really really fun. Um, but for me, just like mouthpiece to face, buzzing in the morning, doing my flow studies, doing my, like my routine fundamentals work is so deeply satisfying and such a part of my daily routine. And I think that that, um, ends up informing the way that I play even the hardest of hard things. It still is these building blocks that are just stacked differently. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, there's something you said about the, the power of ritual, you know, and I think that. Um, you know, when I was younger, I maybe didn't appreciate that. Well, I know I didn't appreciate that <laughs> I do now, but, um, you know, it, when you, when you approach your, your practice, uh, as a sacred time and a sacred space, you know, uh, that you get a completely different result. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that, um, when when we can when we can do that we we become embodied we 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 become so engaged in the process we're physically obviously engaged you know, as, as we're doing we're mentally engaged but then there's also kind of a spiritual and emotional engagement into the process and um, you know for for the years that I that I ran a martial arts school. Uh, you know, it's it's very customary in every, almost every martial art that when you uh, enter into the training hall or the, the the mat or whatever, that you bow, you salute, you do something, and it it signifies that as I enter this space, that I'm I'm you know leaving my baggage behind me. I'm here. I'm dedicating my time to this space and to to this practice. And then you do the same thing when you leave, and it's like honoring the the time that you just spent. And now you can go on and and do your your daily stuff totally. And, and I I think that sometimes it, we lose sight of uh of the nature of the ritual and the, and the the power that it holds.
0: Yeah, no, I I think that that's spot on. Um, I feel like bad if I don't practice, not bad about myself in some, you know some sort of like ethical or, or moral way, but like I just feel like I haven't done everything I wanted to do in a day if I haven't spent that couple hours in the basement like doing doing that work. It just feels like it's such a it's such a core part of my day, the things that I do every day. For me now with two kids, it's a thing that I do like starting at nine o'clock at night in the basement and go until I'm done. Um but yeah, I think the the act of doing, like the act of just sitting down to do the thing. I think is uh it's really important for me at least yeah
1: yeah and there's also the the like in the the study of of uh what is called the flow state or you know Mm some things like that uh one of the uh one of the things that, that an activity needs to have or to be is what they call autotelic which is the reward of doing whatever you're doing should be the reward uh, as opposed to the, the result, you know, whatever you achieve. It's not that it's just the fact that you're doing it. That's where the joy comes from. And uh, yeah, I I think sometimes when when we don't, as we go back to that that concept about passion, that when you're doing something that uh, does not have a level of passion that you don't have a level of passion for, then it's hard to feel that reward from doing it because everything just becomes like the, the grind, the drudge that, that you don't really want to do. So, uh, you know, being able to, to tie your passions to your practice, that I think that's a a really cool kind of way to, to approach
0: things. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
1: So, you know, when you were talking about, uh, you know, your, your gateway drug into, uh, new music, um, if someone you know if someone comes in and says, "Hey, man, you know, look, I really am interested in learning more about uh, contemporary composition, uh, new music, and particularly as it relates to trumpet. Uh, what are some of the resources that you would start pointing people toward?
0: Oh, man. Um, I mean, there's, there's so many people doing really interesting things. And I think, again, this the thing I mentioned earlier, this kind of plurality of, of practice, right, the, the, there are just so many different types of, quote, new music, or, or um, maybe we can define it as like, contemporary concert music or something. I don't know. But there's There are people like Marco Blau that are doing really, really interesting things. Hokan Hardenberger has been doing really interesting things and and at an incredibly high level of trumpet playing for many, many years. But there are also people, I think, who are doing something slightly different that end up living in this world between jazz and improvised music and um, through composed concert music. So you have like... The Peter Evans of the world, and you have someone like Kwang Vu, who's living a little bit more in the jazz area, but I think is just doing this incredibly forward thinking work. Um, I end up just like throwing links at people <laughs> like just check out or, or just giving like a list of names and saying like check out all these people, they're doing very, very cool things. Um, And then that ends up leading you. It's like the Wikipedia thing, right? Like you get on Wikipedia and you read the first paragraph and realize that there's four hyperlinks already to things you don't know what they are. And so you click them and it takes you somewhere else, and that takes you somewhere else, right? Um, I think it it can kind of be that way with new music just because there's so much stuff happening and there are so many ways of people fairly easily getting their music or getting their playing or their work out there. it can almost be overwhelming just to start blank slate. Um, so I, I try to usually give a handful of names of people that are doing what I think are really interesting things, but also very different. Um, and the odds are, I feel like one of those people in the work they're doing will likely resonate with the person that's kind of on this search and then will lead them into all these other directions and um, finding new people that, that are doing very, very very interesting things. I also love now when I have students that um, I have a text thread with a couple of recent grads, and they're always sending me stuff that they're listening to, um, which is great because I don't know what 23-year-olds are listening to (laughs) anymore. Like I'm now like I'm the old person that has to be like, wait, what is, who is this? Oh, this is incredibly famous right now. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah it's it's happening. <laughs> it's happening, yeah.
1: So, uh, let's actually talk about uh you know what you're doing on the education front.
0: Yep. Um so I teach at the Lange School of Music um which is it's called the Lange School of Music of Bard College, but it's not at Bard College. Um <clears throat> so it's it's in Boston, it's in Cambridge, um just outside of Harvard Square. It's a small conservatory of about 300 or so students. The vast majority are graduate students. Um and so there I'm teaching trumpet. I co-directed new music ensemble with a uh, bassoon faculty colleague and friend of mine, Rachel Elliott. Um, I coach some new music um, or, and chamber music there. I direct the chamber orchestra. Uh, so sometimes that's conducting, um, sometimes it's programming, but often um, we try to have, give as much student agency as possible. So usually in a semester, the first concert I program, the second concert, I give them some sort of frame within to work and then they are responsible for programming the concert and dealing with the logistics and placements and setting up the chairs and all that sort of stuff um and uh i also run the, the the there's a new music summer program that we do every year called divergent studio that happens in june so i i direct that so at Longy, um you know i was thinking when when i was younger i thought that i wanted to teach trumpet at like a sort of higher education level, um, but I wasn't really interested in getting a doctorate. So I had this kind of blind faith that um, I would just do the work I was doing and continue working on doing more of it and at a high level and just kind of hope that the playing career that I have and the things that I'm interested in will at some point lead me to some sort of teaching in higher ed thing um and it ended up panning out and i feel very lucky for that um especially considering how just kind of obscenely difficult it is to get any kind of job in higher ed and at first i was just teaching um i was teaching trumpet and coaching chamber music but um i think one of the things that i really love about lanji is that i've I've always kind of thought of myself as um or or i always wanted to be more than just a trumpet player not just a trumpet player but i felt like i had um <clears throat> there were things other things that i thought that i was good at and passionate about that are different from just playing the trumpet so uh, running the new music ensemble that kind of thing was a thing that i thought that i would be good at and really love doing um administrating the um the summer program I think is really fun kind of organizing that and getting people together and bringing in guest composers and colleagues and friends from across the country for a week or two of intensive study and work with, with students, composers, and performers who are really amped about this kind of music. Um, and so Lanji has given me, um, the ability to do a lot of these different kinds of work that, that I really enjoy. Um, Yeah. So I see colleagues who have, you know, the the kind of normal trumpet teaching thing is you're the trumpet teacher at a school and you have a studio of 20, 25 kids and majority are undergrad and a handful are grad students, and then maybe a doctorate student. And that's an incredible job. Uh, And those jobs are few and far between. Um, But as other jobs pop up and I see things and think about like, should I apply for this thing? I end up, Always coming back to this idea that the thing that I really love about the place that I'm at teaching and the students that I get to work with is that I'm getting to work with all sorts of students because of all of the kind of varied things that I'm doing at the school so i'm. Working with as many string players, as I am with trumpet players, uh, which is really it's super fun fun for me and I think. um, So much of my trumpet playing has been. Of course, with other trumpet players, but my quartet is trumpet, trombone, bass, clarinet, baritone voice. I play all the time with my wife, who's a soprano. And then I'm also doing all this chamber music stuff. So I'm often the only trumpeter in the room. um, And have found that super rewarding and informative uh on my own playing being able to to play with a singer all the time and try to match them and see what it is to like match their articulation based on the words they're singing and like it can really make you a much better trumpet player a much better much more well-rounded musician so I think um the teaching work that I'm doing now is is kind of doing the same same thing and that I'm getting to work with people who play all sorts of different instruments but all are kind of after the same goal of creating High-level art, music, whatever that means to them, and uh, the kind of stage that they're at and their development. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, that it, I think that the, the theme that that I've been picking up on, on our conversation so far is that you know there are so many different paths that we can take uh, in in our careers, um, you know, whether it be the the playing, the teaching, the the compositions, uh, and you got to find the one that that the one that speaks to you, you know. Yeah for sure. Yeah, cuz yeah, I, I I totally agree. Yeah, I know people that, you know, have uh had had visions of, you know, the higher education thing and like, you know, get my doctorate, I'm going to teach at a at a university and blah 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 and then they get the gig and they hate it because it, it was not at all what they really what they really wanted. So, I think the the earlier we can get clarity on on what are those really those truly important things like I I like to call the non-negotiables uh, right and you know there's no perfect situation uh but um you know th- there's always going to be something about whatever you do that you wish you didn't have to do oh but, yeah of course <laughs> but that's the trade-off and, and when when those when the things that you don't like are far outweighed by the things that you do love then to me, that's a no-brainer. But you know, when most of us go through life the other way around, you know, it's like we'll, we'll put up with twenty thousand things that that we don't really, take, really particularly care to do, uh, just for that one little minuscule moment of 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 joy. Uh, so I guess it depends on, on what your ledger line looks like, you know, in terms of your your uh, happiness in life. So.
0: Yeah, for sure. I feel very fortunate with the 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 job situation, like the laundry job situation. Um, you know, the other thing for me, that's amazing about this particular job is that my, my wife who I play with all the time is also the, the chair of vocal studies there. Um, so I had been teaching there for a while and then that job opened up and she was teaching at Susquehanna university in Pennsylvania, um, had a really great tenure track job, but this opened up and for her, it was kind of similar in that, um, she was able to teach the amount of students she wanted to teach. She was able to kind of pick the students that she wanted to work with, uh, administrate the department. So she was given this kind of artistic freedom to develop a, develop a program, develop programming throughout the semester, develop curriculum, um, and teach the classes she wanted to teach or not teach. So you have this agency um, in a job and we get to work in the same place we share an office, which seems like very cute and silly. Um, but it, but it works out really well. And I think for me too, my, one of my non-negotiables has been location. Um, it's always been really important for me to be, um, for a long time, it was important for me to be in New York. Um, and I think that that was really important for me and really good for me. And now, um, Boston feels really great because I'm being given all these wonderful opportunities to play with really great players. I get to sit next to Terry Everson in BMOP, which is such a treat every time. Um, and to be in a city, I think, is, is important for me. So, that, I mean, that was another thing with the DMA, which was um, most of the schools in these big cities that I would be interested in living in aren't going to be looking for a person necessarily with a DMA anyways. Right like so I think so much of getting the DMA and wanting to go that track is also knowing and being open to the idea of moving somewhere for the job um, and that never was super appealing to me, so um, I got lucky in a lot of ways, but just kind of knew that like these were the things that were important to me, and so spending the time to do this additional degree I'm not sure is actually going to benefit me because it's not like I'm willing to do the thing that would be necessary to get that job. That the perp- that that's the purpose of the degree, anyways.
1: Yeah, yeah. There there's a lot to be said for that. You know, absolutely. Um, so when when you talk about uh, uh, you know your your career now, how you've kind of uh, you you've, you've had the pendulum swing from the the strict orchestral world to the new music world to kind of now finding this balance between, right. um, between the two. Um, you know, what are what are the some of the things that that bring you joy uh from playing in the more uh traditional orchestral uh chamber music sort of uh scenario
0: yeah um playing for me like playing trumpet well and with a good sound and with like good player like that feels really good. That <laughs> physically feels really really good. I enjoyed that sensation quite a bit. Um, it's also <clears throat> um I don't know. I mean, I I guess for me I with part of the pendulum swing was like was also realizing that there were all these in in throwing a lot of stuff away, right? By going hundred percent new music, I started to realize that I missed all of the good things about all of these other different types of music. Um, and so now as that pendulum in terms of like playing comes back, it, I think a lot of it is related to the fact that um, in my personal listening life, I listen to a lot of period performance of early music. So why would I not be trying to play that? Uh, I'm listening to a lot of like Schubert piano trios. So why would I not be trying to play music that also lives in that world? And it, I think it brings, um, a richness to everything else. It informs everything else. So I think my new music playing is better for it. I think my broke trumpet playing is better for my, because of my new music playing. I think all of these things, they, they only help each other. Um, so I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know that, that, that super answers your question, but, um, for me, the idea of being able—I really like playing trumpet, and I really like music. So, which, which sounds very simple, but for me, that that ends up just meaning like, why would I not be trying to play as many different types of music with as many different types of people as possible in in my career?
1: Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's—I uh, I think I've had that conversation with so many different people. Uh, because it's one that I, I've I had to have with myself uh, many times is that if, if you love playing music, then play music. And it's right. and is, is so many different things. Now, granted, you're always going to have your favorites, um, but uh, still there's yeah, the, the fact that, that you're, you're doing something that you love, you know, and, and if you're getting paid for it, that's bonus. Yeah. And, and so, Yeah, there there is certainly something uh, beautiful about every form of music uh, if you really uh, take the time to to immerse yourself into it. Even things that, as you're talking earlier about, like you know microtonal uh, kind of things, or you know the yeah rhythmic variations and things. That yeah, now we're we're a little more accustomed to. Not standard meter, but, but uh, even like some of the, the polyrhythmic stuff that goes on in a lot of, uh, of ethnic music, uh, you know, it, it just sounds, it sounds off-putting sometimes when you've just never been exposed to it, and then the more you're exposed to it, it becomes second nature, and you see the beauty.
0: Yeah, it's just another cool thing. Yeah, it's like one, one, one other cool thing that you get to engage with, engage with professionally. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that it informs my teaching. Um, because in, though I have my particular interests on, in, you know, in terms of my trumpet playing and the music I like to play, my students don't share those interests with me all the time. I mean, they never will a student share all of those interests with me. We're different people. So my, um, when I'm teaching trumpet, I'm teaching to the student that I have. So it doesn't matter my particular tastes in music because we're working on, I'm working with the student on the thing that they're passionate about, trying to you know, make sure they're keeping an open mind to all of these different things that are out there, but really working on them, working with them on the things that they're the most interested in. Um, so it also behooves me to have a really wide understanding of music and possibilities also, so that I can, I can help the students. Um, so a student can bring in a piece that I really don't like, but that doesn't matter to me. I still have to find the thing that is valuable in the ways that I can be the most helpful to the students. So, um, you know, as many things as I can play professionally are the same things that I can then bring into the lessons or bring into, um, when I'm coaching a chamber group or conducting the chamber orchestra or something, just the, the amount of exposure to music that I have helps to inform my teaching also, which I think is, is important.
1: right. Yeah having having diverse experiences uh, I think that's that's the key to to everything you know um so in, in terms of like your teaching as you're talking about you you've uh, developed uh, some some methodology you have a a, a method book if i I hate to use the word method book, but you have a a practice practice book uh, that that you uh, have published yeah i i I just was kind of perusing it uh recently, and I just found it to be really kind of a a refreshing uh approach to sound production so yeah can you maybe uh, talk a little bit about about how you came came to some of those those insights
0: yeah i mean it's all stolen right or like stolen or shared (laughs) um the you know the funny thing about it is that um it's all stuff that i gleaned a little bit from here a little bit from there Uh, you know i hear um jim thompson in my ear all the time when i'm playing as my former teacher of many years. Um, So a lot of it is studying with Jim, but then there's also all these other people I studied with and these people I get to sit next to and play. And, you know, every time you show up to a gig, you get to hear your colleagues doing really interesting warm-up or fundamental exercises and you pick their brain about the things that they're doing. And these all add to um, my approach to playing trumpet. Um, So, yeah, I mean, so it's just an amalgamation of all the other information that I have been given and have kind of absorbed over many many years, which I think is exactly what it should be, right? Like we're we're sharing the information that we have gathered and synthesized and then we we share it with students or um people and then they take little bits of the thing that resonates with them and then they do exactly the same thing with the information they gathered and that's how we as a community, in this specific case, a community of trumpet players grow. That's how the art grows. Um, yeah, so uh, it's not like it was divinely sent <laughs> or or anything like that. It's little bits from a lot of very, very great trumpet players um, and then through my particular lens. So the things that I have found work well for me um, and the things that I have found work well with with my students. So part of the reason for making the book was because i have i had these series of handouts that i that i developed over the past couple of years and would always give to students um i had these things that i was saying all the time or these little diagrams i was always like sketching on chalkboards or on pieces of paper for them um and then was doing the same thing when i would go around giving master classes so i thought that um i don't know why i thought that starting to do this with a six month old at home and another one on the way was a good idea, but it's when it's when I decided I wanted to do the thing. Um, So I wanted to put together a a book that basically dealt with um, kind of two things. The first was uh, what a possible routine could look like, what my routine generally looks like. but using that as a departure point to talk about the approach because i think that there are so many books out there with amazing exercises um i think about the books of chris gecker for instance like all of these just incredible exercises and things you can do to get better at the trumpet um but one of the things that i think is often lacking or maybe not lacking it could be totally purposeful is that there aren't um Like very detailed descriptions of how to approach these things you see it sometimes in older books Um, but i wanted to have a book that that spent as much time talking about how to approach the exercise and how to approach the instrument how to approach the breath um, as it having as, as much of that as it does actual exercises because for me the exercises are kind of interchangeable Um, I've put in the exercises that I find work for me. A lot of them are sort of traditional exercises. We all know, but I have tweaked for kind of strategic practicing reasons. Um, but the thing I think is really important is how you're approaching the exercises so that then you can do a different drill with the same approach or pick up a piece of music, but you have the approach. Um, you have the foundation set to be more successful when you're playing, whether it's Trills, etudes, pieces, doesn't matter. Um, so at the beginning of the book, I spend um, some time just talking about like really the the basics. Um and it's not a book for beginners, really. Maybe some of this stuff would be would be helpful. Um, but I, I think of it as a book for people that can already play the trumpet. And this is like sort of my, my ideas on how to how to refine and how to make the process of playing the instrument more efficient easier so that we have greater um, expressive capacity basically we can do more with the instrument um, so at the beginning of the book I spend a bunch of time just talking about my particular way of approaching the breath um, why and how and give some simple exercises on, on working on that um, and then I go into the very first thing I do. I do a lot of soft practicing. I find that that helps a lot for just about everything, but especially in the contemporary music, like the hardest music I play, I think that having um, a really responsive aperture is, is. I mean, it's helpful for everything on the trumpet, but I think it's, it's incredibly helpful whenever I'm having to do this really acrobatic work. Um, so for me, I, I saw this exercise, to, actually Terry Everson showed me a, a variation on this where basically you just um you buzz into the mouthpiece as soft as possible with no pitch in mind you're like your very first thing you're doing in the day is allowing your lips to vibrate rather than forcing them to vibrate a particular pitch um and so doing these kinds of very very simple exercises just to find your breath to find the buzz before you even go to make notes on the instrument um yeah, so I, I think I, I tried to spend a lot of time talking about, like, the really basic fundamentals of trumpet playing, um, because I think if those are solid, it just makes everything else easier, right? How can we talk about lip flexibilities or articulation stuff if we don't have, like, if our breath isn't sort of placed well, and if our, if our lips aren't vibrating the way they need to be vibrating to make the trumpet work on that particular pitch? Yeah,
1: I like that. I mean, the, the, the thing that, that I really resonate with uh, most that you said was uh, the importance of, of uh, understanding the, the method behind the madness. Yeah, the, the, the exercises, you know, exercises are exercises. And, and whether it's in playing trumpet or working out at the gym or anything like that, it, you know, there's only so many different ways you can do whatever it is you're doing but when you understand the the theory behind it, you understand the mindset you need to have when you're doing it, what what are the key components you need to really pay attention to, then that's where you get the real benefit.
0: Right, for sure, and I I tried also with this knowing in in my own practice, um, I always found that finding a bunch of different ways into a concept was really important for me um, so one of them, of course, was like sitting next to my teacher and talking to them about it and then hearing them demonstrate a particular thing right so. For this book, I also made a series of videos so every exercise has an accompanying YouTube video where I talk a little bit more about the exercise and then demonstrate to try to like. Get that way of learning for the people that do best with that kind of thing I wanted to make sure they had access to that um. For other people, just reading the words on a page is enough, right? So I wanted to make sure that the that I had a bunch of language about how to approach these things, and that the language was clear and communicative um, so that, that that also was there. Some people do really well with diagrams. I always did well with uh, like diagrams and metaphors um. So I made sure to include like a handful of those that I always found worked well. And then there are these exercises. So my hope too with it was that um, regardless of the way that an individual student learns, there's a little bit of something for a bunch of these different learning styles. So that if, you know, if you if you pick up a trumpet method book and you see a bunch of words and you're kind of allergic to that, well, there's a picture, maybe that helps. Or a video where you can, um, maybe maybe you're the type of student who benefits from just like hearing someone do it and then you can recreate it. I have a student like that at Lanji now who has just unbelievable ears and an unbelievable ability to mimic. And so for them, like all the words in the world are like, great, it's not going to hurt, but just hearing the thing demonstrated helps for the concept to click. Um, so I I wanted to make sure that that with the book, it was there was a way in for different types of learners, uh, and different types of students.
1: Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, because you know we all have our own learning styles. So, uh, and then even within that, uh, you know, uh, you may learn m- most things well. You may be a, a visual learner in most things, but then one concept, it, it's going to take you know a kinesthetic approach. It may take a, more of a oral approach. Yeah, you know, so. I think the more, right. more options you present, the, the better, the, res, the overall result is going to be. And I think so many yeah, to me, for sure. um you know, regardless of what we teach, it's our tendency to want to teach the way we learn as opposed hmm, to trying right. to what the
0: student learns best. Right. No, and that's, that's, a, hard, that's a hard lesson as a teacher to learn. Um, and I think you all, you know, if if you're a good teacher and you're paying attention, you you either are like already good and know that going in, or or you learn the hard way. Um, I learned I learned the hard way fairly recently in the past couple of years. It was um, and did a lot of thinking on it and have hopefully like kind of adjusted my approach. But I, I remember um, sitting and talking with Jim uh, Thompson about this, and and he had this idea that like if you look at any ex-great pedagogue right um and such a great pedagogue that now there are a bunch of great trumpeters who have a book out about the this teacher's exercises saying this is the true way to do these exercises um the thing that jim said i thought that was so interesting is uh, if this is the true way to do the exercises why does everybody's book say something different and the the reality is, is that there is no true way to do these exercises, or there is no true way to the approach the great pedagogues were the great pedagogues because their approach was catered to the individual that was in the room with them and their particular needs. Uh, and so it, it is comforting to think that this is the one way to do things it makes it easier, right? It takes away like a lot of the gray area about the fact that there are an infinite number of ways to do just about anything. Um, if we talk about like, <laughs> it's like there are many ways to skin a cat, uh, just poor cat that is constantly being skinned. But it, like, it's true, there are just so many ways to do it. And so despite the fact that it feels good to think that um, you are right and your method as given down to you from your teacher is right, the reality is is that the reason that these teachers were great is because they were flexible and changed it up for every student depending on what they needed so I think the what we can all aspire to as educators is being equally as flexible we have the things we're good at we have the things we know we have things more maybe better at communicating than other things um, but just knowing that like you, you have to teach in a way that is just as flexible as you, you know, it's like showing up on a gig um, and say you're playing with like Barry Manilow or something and you start playing like you're playing Mahler is like you're doing it wrong because you're not playing to the style in the same way that we're not teaching to the student. Um, but yeah, that that flexibility, I think, is incredibly important if you if you want to be good at that. Yeah, yeah, 100 percent, man.
1: 100% with you. And actually, that makes a great segue into uh, the first of our standard segments. This is our brand new segment. Uh, this is uh, called Go Practice. And it's brought to us by uh, Brian Davis of uh, Airflow Music. Uh, a lot of great resources uh, on the Airflow website uh, for your practice. And uh, what, I, I guess here's, here's what I'd like to ask you. Um, because there's so many, there's so many people that that uh, tune into this podcast uh, who are, are much like me. Uh, we are not full time professional players, um, you know. So you know, maybe weekend warriors. Uh, there may be some amateur players, some college students, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, the the life of, of a non well, even a working pro, you you, you still have the same thing. Uh, you don't always have time to practice the way that you would like to practice you know? Yeah, uh, for sure. So, um, if, if you had only a limited amount of time to practice uh, in a day, uh, I'm going I'm to, I'm starting to call this segment, uh, keep it or cut it. Uh, what, what are, what's the, 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 like the, the stuff that mm-hmm. you say that I cannot go a day without addressing this as part of my practice. And what's the, what are the parts that you can like, eh, okay. If I hit it today, I hit it today. If I, I don't, you know, it, it's not gonna be a major, major malfunction.
0: Sure. That's a hard question. Um, so I, I think um, I think there are a handful of fundamentals on trumpet that I think are, at least for me, kind of non-negotiable, right? Like things that have to be addressed, they're integral parts of trumpet playing. So if I think about um, what I d- practice on a perfect day, where I get to practice as much as I wanna practice, I'm starting by doing just like a little bit of breathing, 30 seconds or so, just engaging with the breath, I'm doing a little bit of this barely buzzing, like just as soft as possible. Spending a little bit of time on a middle G, um, just finding the center of that note, finding the easiest way to play at the most resonant spot of the note. I'm going into flow studies, I'm going into lip flexibilities. some scale studies, um, articulation exercises. Uh, did I say lip flexibilities if I didn't say them already, some long tones, some really soft kind of Clark playing to work on, um, to work on the sort of responsiveness of the aperture. Um, and also the fact that like playing low and soft is very, very similar to what we need to do physically to play high. Um, uh, it's just a difference of airspeed, but the, the lip essentially is the same. So, um, when I don't have the time to do that whole routine, I still try to do all of those things just in shorter amounts. Um, This is the thing I talk with my students a bunch about is if you have, say you have a half, you love getting an hour and a half to do your full fundamentals routine, but today you have 17 minutes and then you have a rehearsal. The things for me that I need to do is I need to, I need to basically hit all of those things. I just do them for a much shorter amount of time than I would do it if I was, if I had the luxury of doing it in every key, at a bunch of different tempos or something. Um, so for me, I think those those are the things that I hit every day. Right, those all of these kind of building blocks of playing trumpet, um, making sure that I am hitting those. If only for, um, even if in an articulation study, I only get to do it in two keys right? I'm strategically picking like, okay, let me do one that gets me in the middle and low register. And then let me do one that gets me into the starts in the higher register, gets to the middle and back up to the high register or something. So that um, I'm knocking out these different fundamental concerns in different registers um, kind of quickly, but addressing each of those things. For me, at least I think like if I only had a half hour to play and I spent the whole time doing articulation exercises, that would leave me set up funny the next day to play um so yeah i mean even if like if i'm on the road or something um and i have a concert to play and not the same amount of rehearsal and i'm in a hotel like that's the kind of warm-up that i do um just trying to like get get all of those things checked off those fundamental building blocks but i will say that um the thing that has become really clear to me about practicing is that it's highly special, it's highly individualized. Um, So the way that I practice works well for me, the things that I do work well for me, even the things that I think of as like non-negotiable fundamental building blocks works well for me, but some uh, somebody else may think like the first thing they need to do in the beginning of the day is triple-tonguing. It's like, ah, it doesn't matter to me, <laughs> like what you do, the I think you will find through experience and through doing things and finding what works and what doesn't work, you'll find what works and how to practice. Um, but personally, for me, I still try to hit all of those things just quickly. That was a long way <laughs> of saying just that, but um, I think also trying to combine fundamentals is really, can be a, a, a really great way of saving both time and chop, right? So, um, in the lip flexibility exercises in my book, they also are articulated. I have, um, I do, I do it slurred first and then articulated immediately after. So we're working on articulation, but we're also working on using the air in the same way we did when we slurred and we're articulating. Um, so we're doing one exercise but knocking out a couple different fundamental needs or on the articulation studies rather than just diving into a um, kind of diatonic drill. I do two bars of articulating a single note so that we're, um, we're spending some time before going into the drill, making sure that we're centered, making sure that our air is working. Um, and so we're, again, we're like, that's two exercises in one. Uh, so we're able to, to, yes, yeah, to save time, save chop. We're, you know, and all this talk about being efficient on playing trumpet, we also have to be efficient with our time because, um, at least in my experience, uh, my face is a renewable resource, <laughs> like, but the, it's, but it takes a night of sleep to renew. Right. So I can't, I can't play all day. So I have to be thoughtful about the way I'm practicing and what I'm practicing. And so if you're the type of player who doesn't have, um, like you said, maybe you're, you're an amateur player or or kind of part-time and you have limited, you have 45 minutes to practice a day or something. Um, and that's not, not including like pieces you're working on for a band concert or something. Uh, I think making sure that you're hitting, hitting those things every day, at least briefly will allow you to, to not only maintain, right. But ostensibly to even like get a little bit better at these things, even though you're not practicing them as much as you would like to.
1: And that's solid advice. I love it. Love it. All right, let's move on to our next segment. Next segment is called Sound Off. It's brought to us by Barclay Microphones, and it's about uh, your approach to sound. And I know, you know, uh, being at Eastman, talking about uh, uh, you know working with uh, Professor Thompson, uh, you know that that is a, a huge thing. You know, getting that that nice resonant sound on the mouthpiece uh, part of the buzzing. Um, so, you know, what are what are some of your go tos? Uh, in terms of of the way that that you can get the most uh, pure resonant sound on the horn, and especially as it as it pertains to uh, the requirements of the job, because you know obviously the the sound like you were talking about before, you know the sound that you would want to have playing Mahler and the sound you want to have playing for Barry Manilow uh, are, are not the same.
0: Uh, but- yeah, right. They're they're not the same. Um, and the style is not the same, but I think the approach can be the same. Uh, the The approach in terms of like the most resonant sound possible. Um, for me, my go-to is like technically the things I work on. Um, I still do a bunch of buzzing in my practice. Um, again, I do a ton of soft, like really, really soft playing because I find that that trains... My aperture to be able to be super, super responsive and really, really flexible, so I can make all sorts of different types of sounds. Um, but for me, I think it's it's again, it's not exotic. It's um, it's buzzing. It's making sure that um, my buzz isn't forced. That I'm that my balance between lip and air, or, or that I am balanced between between my lip and my air, and that my lip is receiving the not the amount necessarily, but the quality of air that is necessary to do whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, yeah, so I do both, both in my own practice and with my students, I do, I do a lot of buzzing, especially initially. Um, so even on a hard thing where it's atonal and, um, maybe there's a lot of leaps or something and the intervallic relationships are a little bit complicated, I'm still going to go through and buzz from note to note to figure out like what those relationships are, what those balances are. So that will allow me to play with a resonant sound with this sound of it kind of um, feeling easy and having this really rich uh, amount of harmonics in it, despite the fact that what I'm doing could very easily lend itself to like pinching or doing all sorts of weird stuff. So um, for me doing, doing this kind of really slow work, note by note, finding the center on each note before moving to the next one, doing the buzzing kind of work um, is how I, that's basically how I, how I do that kind of work.
1: Okay, cool.
0: That's good stuff.
1: All right, let's move on to our next segment, and this is uh, uh, I think every trumpet player loves to talk about gear. This is uh, <laughs> geared up. This is brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces, Venture where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21 at checkout to get 10% off your order. Uh, so let's let's talk uh, about your concepts of gear, um, and I, I guess because of the uh, the nature of of the music that you're doing. I mean, obviously when you're playing Baroque, you're, you know, you're probably playing a Baroque trumpet, but as you're playing new music, um, what are the concerns that you have in terms of your equipment and, and what, do you, what do you look for and how do you uh, gauge uh, the right equipment for the job that you're trying to do?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, gear wise, like instrument wise, I've been actually playing the same horns for a long time now. Um, I play I play I'm a Yamaha artist I've played Yamaha horns for years now um my C trumpet is a first generation Chicago um C that I got like like when they first came out that would have been 2004 2005 or something um and my B flat is uh one of the New York yamahas that i that i like a lot so my my horns i actually don't fuss with i play just about everything on c trumpet that i can um for the new music stuff i feel like it helps me be a little bit more accurate everything is a little bit closer together um although um so much of teaching because so much of what students are playing is b flat trumpet on on solo, so i end up like going back and forth and practicing all those instruments every day so that uh, when I pick up B flat, it doesn't feel like I'm picking up a euphonium or something, but, um, but yeah, so I play, um, all Yamaha trumpets mouthpiece wise is that's the thing. I think I think about the most though, I'm, I'm not as knowledgeable about equipment as I should be. I end up going a lot by feel, um, so the things that are important to me are that I, um, I prefer to try to play the smallest mouthpiece that I can that gives me the sound that I want and the flexibility that I want. Um, because for me, I'm, I'm very rarely playing third trumpet in a, like a giant symphonic orchestra. So I don't, a big mouthpiece for me has never really, really worked. Um, and the kind of work that I do rarely necessitates that kind of playing. Um, so for me in the past couple years, I have found that like five, something in the five, like Bach five area works well. That's what's comfortable for me. That um, allows me to play with the sound that I want in the most circumstances and the most types of playing. Um, Cause I prefer to not change gig to gig if possible. I like kind of sticking to a thing. Um, so for a long time, I've been playing on uh, Austin custom mouthpieces um, the five C kind of hybrid. Um, it's in, in two pieces and I just switched over to, I forget the number the GR numbers are, are wild for me. I can't, so I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's, um, it's something in, in like five C area too. Um, and I switched to, cause I felt like it facilitated, there was a little bit less resistance in the high register, which I liked. Um, But I, I usually like, I'm the type of person that likes to find a thing and then stick with it. Um, I, I have a leather wallet and a bag from this company called Saddleback, um, because they have a lifetime warranty or no, it's a hundred year warranty. And one of their little like motto things is they'll fight over it when you're dead. Like I <laughs> I like this feeling of consistency. Um, I like knowing what the mouthpiece is going to feel like. So I try to get something and stick with it. So I was playing on that Trent Austin mouthpiece for five or six years, seven years. Um, And I would still feel just fine. I'd bring it with me everywhere I go in case I want to switch to it. Um, But my... It, outside of the um, the specifics of like the equipment, because I think that's less important actually, those are just the things that I happen to find work well and feel good for me and were available when I was looking for them. Um, I think that we you, we have to kind of find this balance between the gear that we need so that we can feel comfortable and be flexible playing the kinds of things we are playing, that we have the sound that we want while we're playing, but also are able to blend easily whenever we're playing in a section. Um and so even though Terry, um when I'm playing in BMOP with Terry Everson, he plays all Shires and he sounds like a million bucks on them. Um I play Yamaha and I feel really, really good on them. And I don't think we have any problem blending um when we're in this section. So I think it's it's Finding that balance. There are certain other types of instruments that I could play that I think we would have trouble balancing or, you know, kind of finding a a mutual section sound to use. Um, But yeah, I think the as you're thinking about gear, I think it's instrument wise, it's what what is the thing that feels good, sounds good, you can afford, you can, and then you can play with others. If you play with others, if you're not the type of player, if you're the type of player that's doing only solo work, doesn't matter as much. I think you can be more, that you have a little bit more flexibility. Um, and mouthpiece wise, for me, just a very simple thing is like the smallest thing you can play that allows you to have the sound that you want. Um, for some people, that's a one and a quarter for me, it's a five. Um, I think it ends up being so personal based on mouth shape and you know, there's all these sort of physical, um, components that come, that come into it. I think there was an old school feeling that if you weren't playing on like a one or a one and a half or something, you were somehow less of a, less of a player. I remember feeling that way, um, when I was in high school and, you know, you're sitting in like an honor band and it's like the bigger, the mouthpiece is like a, <laughs> there's like a status symbol or something. And it's just very, very stupid. Um, so I think like knowing that there is the freedom that you need to pick a thing that's good for you, regardless of what the person next to you is playing or what ex famous trumpet player plays, like their mouth is different from your mouth. So you should pick something that works for you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You yeah, know, the a lot of people use the analogy of you know, like uh, if you like basketball and you want to play like Michael Jordan, you know, you you can buy his sneakers, but you know, you're not going to wear the same size that he <laughs> right. Does. Not going to work, you know. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Find what works for you. All right, cool. All right, well, we have one final segment to get through, yep. and this is uh, one of my favorites because it's just kind of goofy, like me. Um, And this is our Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Rounds, the series of questions that kind of bounce all over the place. And I just need your fastest response. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready? Ready. All right, Andy, first question for you. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player?
0: Oh, geez. Uh, You said quick. Okay, probably grandpa. All right. Uh, What's your favorite book? Favorite book? Um, This is like the most cliche thing probably but I uh David Foster Wallace Wallace's infinite jest was really important for me. All right. Uh what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Um, Ghost Rider with Nicolas Cage. Oh that was pretty bad. <laughs> uh, and I'm a huge Marvel.
1: Comic.
0: I I and I think it's good it's good bad, but it's bad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like yeah. it's fun, but it's boy, is it bad. <laughs> Exactly.
1: all right uh, if you weren't a trumpet player
0: what would you want to be I think a doctor an ER physician okay.
1: what is your favorite drink um
0: alcoholic or non-alcoholic doesn't matter non-alcoholic coke zero okay uh
1: you're gonna have a dinner party and you can invite any three living people any three people in the world who would you want to have there
0: Um, I think it'd be really fun to hang out with Steve Martin. Uh, I'd like to have Maria Bamford over. Um, Who else? Probably (laughs) Winton. He's like, he was such a childhood hero of mine. Uh, It would be very fun to get to hang with him. Not Nick Cage? No, 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 not for this one. Maybe if there were five people I could have.
1: <laughs> All right. Uh, so at the same dinner table, you have three additional chairs and those are for any three people in history. Any three people no longer with us.
0: Mm. Okay. David Foster Wallace. I would love to hang out with. Um, Oh, these questions are hard. I feel like if I wasn't on the spot, I'd be able to think of it much more easily. Um, I would love to hang out with Bach. Uh, I think he seems like maybe he was a bit of a curmudgeon, but I, I still would have loved to, to hang. Um, I'm not doing a good job at the quick part. You're not the slowest, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> <laughs> um... Huh. Dead air on podcasts, I think is probably yeah. pretty fun for people to hear. Um, let's say, um, like musical influence for me, like Morton Feldman, I think would be a really fun person to talk to. All right. There we go. It's a very weird dinner table. I just put together. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting. Uh, lacquer plated or raw.
1: <laughs> um, raw. Right. What's your favorite quote?
0: Um, I don't. I don't actually know, but I will say that I do like the "There's many ways to skin a cat." <laughs> I think that's that's helpful. <laughs> the cat doesn't like it. Too much. The cat doesn't like it. I, I won't. Yeah, I love my cat very much, and she's safe. But. <laughs> okay. But if you
1: had to skin her,
0: yeah, right.
1: <laughs> you can do it in a lot of different ways. <laughs> exactly. All right. What's your greatest fear? Um. Probably dying. <laughs> All right. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? I'd want to fly. All right. Uh. What aspect of trumpet playing do you find to be the most overrated? um loud i think okay and what aspect do you find to be the most underrated soft
0: <laughs> Okay,
1: easy there you go um you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music what would it be
0: oh um To, uh, probably to listen openly on the first listen.
1: All right. And uh, while you're back there, you're gonna give younger yourself one piece of advice about life.
0: It's long. <laughs> yeah, there's no, there's no rush.
1: All right. And uh, final question for you. Uh, Andy, what do you want your legacy to be?
0: Yeah. Um, I like the idea of leaving rep behind of leaving like a body of pieces for people to play and to engage with that are of this time uh, and offer i think a window into this particular time we're all living but things that could be potentially part of our canon as trumpeters um i think we lose is this supposed to be a quick answer no no (laughs) i think i think sometimes we lose sight of when we're thinking about old music um we lose sight of the fact that it was always written for someone right like the Mendelssohn violin concerto is considered this like giant peak of western music and concerto writing but it was still like it was written by Mendelssohn for a friend of his who was a violinist right they were colleagues and collaborators so I think um I think we lose sight of that and we lose sight of the fact that pieces exist because of the performers that played them uh, and so, for me, it's about creating this kind of next body of of repertoire for for future trumpeters and musicians to to engage with. Hopefully,
1: All right? Well, awesome. Well, I certainly appreciate you uh, taking time to to hang with me. Uh, this has been really fun for me getting to know you and very educational. And um, I really in, have enjoyed uh, our discussions and and your 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 approach to to things definitely is a, I think one that that we can all kind of aspire to to keep our our ears open, keep our minds open, keep our hearts open uh, because uh, there's lots of music out there to be to be
0: played and to be written and to be enjoyed. So. Yeah, there sure is. And and playing trumpet is fun, so why not why not do it on as many things as possible? Absolutely We'll agree with
1: you, hundred percent. And, uh, yeah, and it's just, yeah you know, nice to catch up with, uh, another person, uh, that, uh, grew up around the steel city and, yeah, uh, go, go Steelers. <laughs> go, go get a decent quarterback is what I
0: say. Oh right? my God. They're yeah.
1: Boy, it's stressful right now. <laughs> oh boy.
0: Yeah. I think, uh,
1: yeah, this, this is a nail biter for me. So, uh, uh, but, uh, enjoy yourself and continue making great music. And I'm, I'm going to certainly be following, uh, Following the stuff that you're doing, and I, I hope to actually be able to catch a catch a live performance because that would
0: be, I think, really really amazing. To, to yeah, see. that'd be great. I, I hope that I hope we cross paths in the the same physical space one of these days. Yeah, that would be great. I'd love to get to Boston. Uh,
1: and next time you see Terry, uh, tell him he's got to be on the podcast. I went to college with Terry.
0: So. Oh, amazing! Yeah, we were both at Ohio State at the same time. And and oh, that's great. He's one of my favorite people. What a a treat to spend time with and to hear and to play next to and just to know he's such, such good people. Good guy. So
1: yeah, I just got to get him on the show. So uh, I'll I'll let him know. (laughs) I'm throwing down the gauntlet. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thanks very much for spending time with us on the hang today. Remember to like share and subscribe. And uh, if you have an idea for a future episode, guest concept topic, Hit me up, always uh, looking for new ideas. Uh, So until next time, folks, peace and slide, grease. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see The Hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at The Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Gurus Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.